Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. My topic for today's episode is Boarding House Reach, the new record by Jack White, his first album in four years. Some people love this record. I happen to like this record quite a bit. I wrote about it on uprocks.com. Other people do not like it. However, uh, you know, and it works out that way. You know, there is no unanimously loved albums. Uh, but this album in particular seems pretty polarizing, and it's not hard to see why. You know, this is sort of a, a wacky Jack White record, if I can use that term in a neutral way. With Jack White records, we're used to them being very straightforward, austere, garage rock, that sort of sound. This album, much more layered. He used Pro Tools for the first time making a record. I would liken the production to almost being like a hip-hop style production, where you're layering sounds, uh, putting things together in almost a collage-like way. It's the kind of record that critics say that they want from established artists because Jack White isn't doing what is expected of him. He's not just plugging into an amp and blasting out awesome-sounding riffs. He's really trying to make a record that he's never made before. Um, However, opinions on how well this record is executed are all over the board. Um, I happen to like the record quite a bit because, to me, Jack White, as a solo artist always runs the risk of being sort of a straightforward, boring, blues rock guy, you know? Because, like, when he was in the White Stripes, he was obviously this very skilled musician, could play guitar great, could write great songs. He was a fabulous singer. And yet he was paired up with Meg White, who was, in my mind, a very powerful drummer, but obviously a very primitive player. And the tension between that, between the skill of Jack White and the sort of primitive power of Meg White... That was the aesthetic of that band, and it helped make sure that the White Stripes, even when they were playing blues rock, always had a very distinctive, unique, almost subversive type sound. On his own, however, Jack White is working with really great musicians, and he's a really great musician himself, and he's writing really good songs. And when you work that way, you're going to come up with great records, like I think Blunderbuss, his first solo record, is really good. But then you also run the risk of having records that seem maybe a little bland or anonymous. Or in the case of his previous solo record, Lazaretto, I felt like he was starting to get a little sour and grumpy on that record. Um, so Boarding House Reach, to me, was sort of like a really fun curveball. You know, it's Jack White saying, look, I'm going to shake up what I do. I'm going to make myself uncomfortable, and I'm going to go back into some of the weird areas that I went into on the first couple White Stripes records. Um, But whereas I I hear sort of a fun curveball filled with interesting experiments, other people have heard as just, they've heard it as a formless uh, sort of uh, indulgent record, you know, with no good songs on it and and really no sense of direction. Um, So I wanted to talk about that with someone who, who had that opinion. So I called up my friend Jeremy Larson, who's the reviews editor at Pitchfork. And Pitchfork, by the way, gave the Jack White record a pretty uh, scathing review. I think they gave it a 4.7. Uh, Jeremy didn't write that review. That was written by Jason Green, who's a great music critic. 
Um, but he agrees with Jason's review, so I thought he would be a fun guy uh, to talk to in this episode. And, you know, we did have a really good conversation, not just about the record, but about Jack White in general. Because no matter what Jeremy Larson's uh, objections to this particular record, he does like Jack White overall. So, you know, we tried to talk about what he was trying to do on this album and, and how it works in the overall arc of his career. Before we get to that conversation, however, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors for this week's episode, and it is our old friends at SeatGeek. It's been a while since we've heard from these guys, but I always love talking about them because I use SeatGeek. If you're not familiar with them, by the way, they're a company that helps you buy tickets, and we all know that buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there is a better way. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a, a night out with friends, or need the, to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. Now, I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. I use it all the time to get tickets. It, it's really easy. You know, you don't have to meddle with all the sort of hassle of going on your computer and figuring it all out. You just tap what you want, and before you know it, you have it. So to entice my listeners to check out SeatGeek, what you want to do is you're going to want to download the SeatGeek app and you want to enter in the promo code CELEBRATION today. That's CELEBRATION as the promo code and you're going to get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Again, this is just for my listeners. You punch in CELEBRATION, you're going to get $20 off your next concert ticket. I know my listeners, I know you guys go to a lot of shows anyway, so why not just do this again? Go to the SeatGeek app, enter in Celebration, get those $20 off. That's a deal for my listeners. Okay, so again, me and Jeremy, we had a great conversation about Jack White, his new record, Boarding House Reach, and we get into it a little bit. We disagreed, but it's a friendly disagreement. (laughs) There was no arguing. There was only conversing, so I think it turned out really well. So here's me and Jeremy talking about Boarding House Reach. So Jeremy, it's... Fun to talk to you here. I, you know, we've talked online a lot. I don't think we've actually ever spoken, though. Is this the first time we've spoken? I believe so. This is the first time I've heard your voice. I'm, I'm glad, like you, you've also somehow rid yourself of a Wisconsin accent. Yeah, well, I was going to get into this because we are both native Scotties. N- neither one of us live there anymore, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, maybe, however you want to look at it. I guess now that Scott Walker is there, it's a fortunately, unfortunately. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But where are you from in Wisconsin originally, by the way? Uh, I'm from Whitewater, Wisconsin. It's a small town. Um, it's a college town. I know um, Whitewater. Well, when I say college town, I mean like uh, state, Wisconsin State College Town, which, right. is, which means something a little different. Um, but it's a small town pretty much between Madison and Milwaukee in the southeast. Um, I've, I've hung out in Whitewater before. You have? What did you do there? Uh, I went thrift shopping. Mm. with some friends. I, I had some college pals that lived in Whitewater. I also have some good friends that are from Milton originally. Ah, yes, Milton. That's the, that's the next town over, Yes, I like to say. I've actually spent uh, more time in Milton than in, than in Whitewater. Uh, but well, they're both fine Whitewater's towns. Kn- Whitewater is known to be one of the most haunted uh, towns in Wisconsin and perhaps even the Midwest. There's a lot of occult lore um, surrounding that town. And, and if you if you're really interested, there's an incredible sort of DIY documentary that somebody made and put up about like the witches of Whitewater. It is um, it's something else. It's not, it's it's not quite Blair Witch Project, and it's not quite the room, but it's somewhere in between. Oh, I love and, it. 
I highly recommend seeking it out if you have an extra 20 minutes to spare. And I'm guessing that they're probably racist witches if they're from uh, that area of Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, sure. Possibly. <laughs> Well, man, I just want to talk Wisconsin stuff with you now. I, I want to get into Culver's and, uh, you know, all of the Wisconsin and the Packers. We got to talk about Packers 2018 season let, here. Let me do this. Let me tee this. I'm going to tee this up real well. You're going to love this. So you talk in your new book that's coming out. Um, <laughs> uh, you talk in the, first, in the first section about the radio stations in Wisconsin. Yes. And I, I, I related to that uh, very, very much um, because – like you, radio shaped my entire um, upbringing. My entire taste was just what was on the radio. I didn't have an older brother or an older sister or even a, a friend until, you know, maybe middle school did I start really trading music with people and understanding that there was a taste outside of um, radio that I was listening to. But but it's very true. Um, the, the different there there are the different uh, rock stations, the different classic rock stations in Milwaukee um, are, are exactly how you describe uh, in your book. It's, so, it's fascinating. So I was going to ask you because in Whitewater, you you were probably getting Madison and Milwaukee stations. I was lucky enough to get both. I could get um, in Madison. It was ninety four one WJJO, which was like the the um, hard rock station, active rock, I think they call it. <laughs> okay. And then um, in Milwaukee, there was uh, Laser 103, yes. um, which then changed to 1029 The Hog, I think. Yes. And then they have, so they have, they had their own stage at Summerfest, and that's where I'd go see bands at Summerfest. Those, those are my first shows, going down to Summerfest and seeing. Um, stabbing westward and all of these, all of these bands, all these sort of uh, '90s post-grunge bands that played at the Laser 103 stage. And if we're talking about Milwaukee classic rock, you also got to say WKLH 96.5. Oh, WKLH, absolutely, absolutely. Which was absolutely. big. What, what was the other? What was the other one that played more of like the '50s and '60s? I don't, I don't quite remember. Oh man, what, it was ninety five point seven. Was yeah, uh, with, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like because my dad, because my uh, my parents are divorced. My I grew up in Appleton, Wisconsin, and my dad and stepmom lived in Milwaukee. So I would visit them every weekend, every two months or something. So I got to know the Milwaukee stations from visiting there. And my dad went between ninety five point seven, which was the oldies station, and then KLH was the uh, classic rock station. Um, oldies ninety five point seven. WZTR. Maybe. I think, I think it's ZTI or ZTR. I can hear the jingle in my head. <laughs> Man, honestly, I feel like we are being sucked in to a Wisconsin-centric podcast here. I think we have to pull out here because I we do. Pull out. I do have Let's serious. Pull out of this loop. <laughs> I have serious business at hand here. I'm investigating a homicide of an album by Jack White, oh. uh, Boarding House Reach, that was committed by Pitchfork. You guys murdered this album. Four point seven. I guess that's not terrible. You could. You didn't go into the twos. You didn't I have. Like to, it, I would like to issue like a brief thing about scores because I think that a lot of people um, maybe maybe misunderstand this, and I don't think it's their fault at all um, because it's been ten years maybe since we've had a rubric on the site that says like what the scores mean, and you know, but I think a lot of people see it as a grading system, like a a, a scholastic grading system where uh, 100 and t- or 10.0 is an A and like a 60 is a D minus. But, <laughs> right. that's not, but that's not the case. That's not the case. It's really 
um, if you think about it, if you um, multiply out by a factor of whatever the Rolling Stone star system, where it, you know, 2.5 is technically a 5.0, right? Um, like two and a half stars is a 5.0. Um, and I think like, that's not that's not a direct one to one ratio, um, but it, all that is to say that we a six point eight album is not a pan. It's in fact there's a lot of things pretty good about it. It's got a lot of things going for it. Um, but it, it you know when people see a six point eight, they're kind of just like oh well that's um, you know a C minus. It's like well no it's not like a D plus or whatever whatever the scholastic system is it's been years since I've taken a class of anything. Um, but <laughs> I mean, I think based on the review, the, the score could have been lower, though. Jason Green wrote it, did a really good job with the review. You should go mm-hmm. read it right now. Not a positive review of the record. Mm-mm. And I'm wondering, you know, you're the review's editor. What are your overall feelings about the record? Almost note for note with Jason. Um, I, I think Jason is such a great writer, and so I, I learned a lot from him as the review's editor. Um, and sort of, and had to take up his mantle and fill his large shoes um, when he left. Um, I, I I agree with the idea that this album is confused, and I and and that it, it doesn't really know what it's striving for. And I think that there is there is one thing to make your um, Album that is an aberration from what you're from what you're going for, and and it's worthwhile to to push forward in your art, um, having you know being fifteen to however many years, twenty almost twenty years into your career, not just fall back on your old tricks. This album, I feel, doesn't achieve that, and I don't think it achieves what uh, Jack White set out to do. And I feel like, to me, like that is sort of the fundamental critical failure is that, all right, well, what did you set out to do and succeed that? What um, feeling or idea or aesthetic did you set out to communicate and did you do that successfully? And to me, like, I, I couldn't square. It's so convoluted and confused that it was hard for me to find out whether that was successful or not. Uh, felt like a Herculean task. And after several listens to it, it really still hasn't even clicked for me uh, in any real way. I mean, um, so, I mean, it's even curdled even more sometimes. I mean, so do you feel like it's a matter of execution then? Because like I, I've seen reviews where they've talked about like the negative reviews. And by the way, like the record, it hasn't been panned across the board. I think on the Metacritic site, it says it has like a 74, which is like lower yeah. than his other records. But it's like not terrible it's gotten good reviews i think more in england a lot of those reviews i think have been more positive i thought it was interesting that the record i think it got like three and a half stars from rolling stone which in a way kind of feels like a pan coming from that i would expect them to be to give them a higher uh score from rolling stone um or at least it feels a little middling um but i've seen reviews talking about how this record doesn't have songs there's not enough songs on there which I don't agree with necessarily, although I understand where that's coming from. I do think that this record is probably more sounds oriented than songs. It's about sort of juxtaposing different things and seeing how they go together. And I think Mm -hmm. it probably comes together a little bit more for me than it did for other people. But, you know, there's more instrumentals on this record. Um, I think it's interesting from a production standpoint because, you know, people have talked about the rapping 
on this record, which sure. is like kind of awkward. And I would say, uh, like in my own review, I, I, I gave it a pretty positive review. At one point, I referred to his rapping as charmingly awkward, and that's something I wish I could, I could go back and take out the charmingly. I think I was probably <laughs> qualifying that a little bit too much. I probably should, should have just kept it at awkward. Although, I will say, he also raps on Lazaretto, the record before this, and I think his rapping has improved slightly from that record. <laughs> See, but, now that's something you should have said. It's like, <laughs> while he's a mark, markedly improved rapper. <laughs> it's not markedly improved. It's like, you know, somewhat improved, slightly improved. I wouldn't, I don't want to go overboard with that. Um, but I think production wise, there's some interesting hip hop nods in how the record was pieced together. Not only because he played with um, musicians that have played with Kendrick Lamar, Kanye West, and Jay Z, but also just the layering of sounds on the record you know, taking things and putting them back together, almost like a collage. It kind of reminds me of more of like a hip-hop style production than like certainly the sort of live audio verite sound that we're used to from Jack White. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know, for me approaching the record, you know, I was trying to think about like why I like it more than other people. And I think part of my response to this record is informed by Lazaretto, which I thought was... I think there's some good songs on that record, um, but I think that's a genuinely sour, sort of un... un it's not a very fun, enjoyable record to listen to. Uh, I don't know if you listen... I don't know if you spent a lot of time with that album. There's gonna, I, have you? That's probably the album that I spent, of all of his albums, that's probably the one that I spent the least amount of time on. Um, uh, I, I really like Blunderbuss. Um, uh, I, I, I love most of the White Stripes. Um I was in that first Rack and Tours album quite a bit when it came out. Um, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, like, I think for me, I think one reason I like this record more is that Lazaretto seemed genuinely unpleasant in places. Mm. Like, there's a song on there called Entitlement, which... Kind right, of, I recall that. Which is like, it's like very much just like very condescending song about, uh, you know, sort of like the modern era and people not appreciating where they come from and all that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. um, I feel like... In, I think in my mind, this record coming after that one, this record seemed more fun to me. It seemed looser to me. It seemed like, okay, maybe Jack White isn't quite so uptight. Like, he's never, I don't think, going to be totally loose. But for for me, the loosest he's sounded, I think, since the end of The White Stripes. Um, and the other thing, I too... I agree with you. And, you know, it, the other thing about Jack White, too... I think the other thing I appreciate, I appreciate about Boarding House Reach is that, you know, as much as I like Blunderbuss, I think that's a really good record, mm-hmm. that outside of the White Stripes, Jack White runs the risk of becoming a fairly straightforward blues rocker. You know, like when he was in the White Stripes and he was with Meg White, her limitations created a tension in that band between Jack White's obvious sort of guitar heroics, you know, the the skill that he had there and the skills he had as a songwriter, putting that up against Meg White, who had this tremendous power as a drummer, but it was a very primitive type power. That was that band's aesthetic. And when you take Meg White out of there, you run the risk of just having another white blues guy. And Mm -hmm. to me, Boarding House Reach is a way to sort of reconcile that and put Jack White back into this zone where he can do things that are genuinely unexpected again. And to me, like, even when this record doesn't work, it's still interesting and fun. Like, I don't think it's a boring record, even when there's parts that fall flat. So in that respect, I'm, I'm inclined to defend it. 
I don't I, know, I, but am I just, yeah, I think am I an apologist those, for that, do you think? No, but I think it's for those reasons that I don't find it very interesting because it seems more about the myth of Jack White than it is about writing good songs. When right. I listen to this record, I think, I hear studio musicians who are really in their head trying to do something different. And it's like, <laughs> and, and so they're thinking, well, how can we take this um, blues and funk style uh, that's kind of like a dusty 90s feel, how can we put our stamp on it? And I feel like I can just hear the gears turning every, every single new track. It, there seems to be just an addition, like another, like what you think is like a layer of experimentalism, I feel is a layer of, um, of being in your head, of, of musicians being in your head that robs some of the soul and the heart and the warmth of it. You know, I, one of my favorite things about Jack White is his guitar tone. I, I think that is just a, of all of, of all of the new guitar players who are around right now, who you could even be, you know, talk about as like, ah, oh, yes, the new guitar player, you know, um, uh, <laughs> I can't even I can't even think of them right now, and I didn't write this down. Um, Gary Clark Jr. Gary Clark Jr. And there's a, there's a few more. Um, no, I think Jack White's one of the last musicians for whom you can say like, ah, yes, that's Jack White's guitar tone. Right. Um, there's a, you know obviously he was, but here it's like he purposely obfuscates it in a way that to me I'm like that's the best thing you got going, and and to take that and to not really um, play around with it. Uh, or to muddy and distort it beyond recognition or in a way that is not melodically engaging or soulfully engaging. To me, kind of just takes some of the fun out of this record. And you can clearly tell that, that I think they're having a lot of fun. You can tell that, they're, that they've glommed on to this idea and they want to see it through. But for some reason... By the, by the way, if, can I just say, because like, you wrote about Respect Commander on Pitchfork, I just want to read a quote of what you said. You, you said, uh, this is what any talented band would sound like after they ripped a few bongs and tried to cover Led Zeppelin's Days and Confused, which but, I think but, you meant as, an in, as a criticism, and I, I take that as a compliment. I think it's both. I, don't think <laughs> it I think it's the truth. I think, it's a, I, think it's a, I tried to convey a, a truth there, and I don't know if that was a... <laughs> You could take that as a criticism or a compliment too, but yeah, do you, do you know what I mean? It's it's to me it feels put on and and not coming from a place of inspiration, but coming from a place of innovation. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I also feel like you know that thing you said before about how well you know you don't recognize his guitar tones in a lot of songs, and it's true that I mean the guitar is de-emphasized on this record. I think mm-hmm. more so than on any other West Tribe, any Jack White record I could think of ex- ex- since maybe God, Get Behind Me Satan, you know, because I had a yeah. lot of keyboards on it. Um, but he's not playing a ton of guitar on the record. It's it's much more about the beats and uh, sort of like the like the rhythmic thrust of the songs. Mm-hmm. But isn't that something that critics are always asking artists to do, though? Like, I feel like if Jack White had made a straightforward, songs-oriented garage rock record, the review today would say, Jack White is looking back, he's nostalgic, he's resting on his laurels. You know, he would be criticized for that, but he's trying not to do that. He's doing what critics always say they want, which is innovate and, you know, change up your sound. And 
You know what I mean? It's I feel like he's in sort of a can't win. Is that I fair to you. say? I mean, I understand that, and I think that when you, <laughs> it, it's a it's a tough road to hoe when you are in your mid career. I think your narrative becomes lead. I think your arc sort of sprays out in a, in a many different directions. I don't think um, some of his press and some of his choices have helped him <laughs> in that regard. Has helped endear him to critics. Right. Um, and and that's but that's not to say. I mean. I go into, you know, mini record. I try to put all of that aside and just be like, what did you create here? Right. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, if this were, if this record were put out in my inbox, someone like passed me a SoundCloud, like, Hey, mystery <laughs> artist put out this record and there, and I got to a song about how they were young and innocent learning how to play the piano. I'd laugh it off the same way that I laughed <laughs> off that moment, you know? Yeah. Jason sort of hung some of his lyrics out to dry, um, which, you know, I, I'm, I'm always careful not, very old, not to always do that because, like you said, like you can kind of wither on the page if you're using a couple lyrics to make a broader point about something. But I don't think Jack White has ever been the, the most engaging lyricist. I think words are like more for texture or more nodding to a blues tradition, um, a, like a Southern tradition. It feels to be further and further from who Jack White is. And it seems further and further away from, from making it sound as if he's communicating something real and truthful, an elusive critique to try to communicate. Um, and it's more just sort of a feeling that you get from it. Yeah. And I, I try to clarify that that feeling is not based on that. I just think he's a, another white dude making blues rock and roll. Yeah. But, but try to back that up with aesthetic choices from the record that I don't think are good. Like, I don't think the choir, I don't think the background voice voices are mixed well. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I, they, they sound tacked on and to a soul to the record. I think it's produced pretty stiff. Um, and, and maybe that's something, uh, that appeals to a lot of other people. But to me, it's a fun record, but it's definitely not warm. All right, guys, we're going to get back to this conversation here in a minute. I just want to tell you about another sponsor for today's episode, and that is our friends at Blind Tiger Record Club. Now, what is Blind Tiger Record Club? It is a final record subscription box service delivered to your door each month. You pick from all kinds of different styles, like alternative, singer, songwriter, rock, jazz, soul, blues, whatever you like. And they mail your record selection out at the end of each month. All the vinyl is new. All the 12-inch records are new. Some are double albums. They're heavyweight. And some of them are even hard to find in port records. The best part of it is the service. Their selections are announced prior to shipping, giving customers the option to choose which album they want each month. Now, subscriptions to the Blind Tiger Record Club start at $25.99. But for listeners of this podcast, we have a special deal. You use the code CELEBRATION at the checkout to receive 50% off your first subscription box. The minimum subscription is three months, so the first box is half off. Then the following two will be the full price at $25.99. So again, subscribers get member pricing and free shipping on items added to their monthly box. Again, that's the Blind Tiger Record Club, your vinyl, your choice. All right, now let's get back to the podcast. What we're talking about here is a difference of opinion on execution. Like, was this right. executed well? And, you know, you mentioned the lyrics. And I know uh, Jason in his review talked about the lyrics to Ice Station Zebra, which is like, or it's like the big song where he raps on it. Yeah. And 
you know, there's like a line in there where he's like, listen up, son, everyone creating as a member of the family, passing down genes and ideas and harmony. I mean, there's parts of that song that are very, very close to, you know, my name, Jack White, and I'm here to say I love Fruity uh-huh. Pebbles and a major, you know, it's very, it veers very close to that kind of delivery on that song. I mean, and I could, I can totally understand someone hearing that and going, this is so half-baked. What is he doing on this song? I guess, again, for me, having followed Jack White's career and being more bothered by his crankiness and sourness, I hear that and I'm sort of relieved that at least he's goofy. It feels goofy to me in a self, in a, in a knowing way. Like I, I have to believe that on some level he knows how goofy this is, but he's still willing to go there and have fun with it. I was on Twitter earlier today and, you know, talking about the record and I was wondering, you know, I, I do feel that Jack White has crossed that Rubicon with critics where there was a point where he was a critical darling. You know, the White Stripes were a critically adored band. You know, they benefited from the boosterism of music writers, certainly in the early 2000s. And then at some point, it flipped for him where I feel like, again, I think critics go into the record with an open mind, but there's also a core feeling that you can't help but have about an artist where like, do I find this person annoying or not? And consciously or not, that influences how you perceive their choices. You know, just as a, as a human being, you can't help having that influence you. And I feel like Jack White has certainly reached that point now where a lot of critics look at him sort of warily as this scold, you know, as, as a sour person. And I'm just wondering like, when do you think that happened? When did that transition happen for him? Where he kind of went from heroic guy to sort of a villain type guy? I would say that the press surrounding Lazaretto um, in 2012. That, that was, that was Blunderbuss. When, you mean Blunderbuss? I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me, Blunderbuss yeah. in 2012. I feel like that's when there was a turn. Um, because he said some, you know, he, he said some, some things about, about women on that press tour. You know, he, he, he told the New York Times, you know, he's like, he doesn't want to define roles for the women. He said, I've always felt it's ridiculous to say of any of the females in my life, you're my friend, you're my wife, you're my girlfriend, you're my coworker, you know. And he, then he says, like, in the same interview, he, he called, like, a reporter, he, he sort of, called a reporter, uh, like, I feel like he called someone a, a bad word. I don't remember exactly what it was, oh. but there was, but there was, I feel like that was the time, um, when, when everybody was sort of like, ah, you have a trouble with women. And then there was all sort of like the nasty thing about, um, there's, there had a very public, um, divorce with, with Karen Elson. And, yeah. Um, I, I feel like that, if we're being honest, I feel like that kind of, soured people in a lot of in a lot of ways and people were like like i don't have time i don't have time for this guy who has <laughs> uh you know who, who wears a suit and uh, records r- records and talks about women in ways that that feel retrograde i feel like that just kind of all lumped into this um uh idea of him right and and perhaps people were just like i i, I don't this is not something we need in music right now. Right. Um, you know, cause it, cause it, and then he, and then he just maybe felt that he's sort of digging his heels in. It's like, no, like this is what's real and what's, 
Um, like what's real is what's on this record and the, the sound that goes into the grooves of this seven inch that I press right. And his stunts of like, we're making the fastest, some of the stunts that he did, like like, the fastest record of like recording to making it, those kinds of things. Like a record in outer space. I think he put, yeah, (laughs) there was a lot of those things. And I think people were like, what, what are you, what are you trying to say? Are you trying to say that we've lost the connection to music and how, and, and are you saying it, Owners of your record, so so I think maybe for me um, that that I don't know if that colored it, but I feel like that sticks in my craw a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, of his of his sort of whole aura. No, I think that's right. I think the you know, and even for me, you know, who I consider myself a fan of his, um, it became more fun to make fun of him than to say nice things about him at that time because he, he's yeah. so easy to make jokes about. And, um, and because he does all these sort of silly things, but then also because he has this very sort of pompous way about him in a lot of, there's, there's, a, there's an element of his persona that's very pompous and very self-serious and you can't help but want to puncture that, uh, when you see a person like that. And well, let me, you know, I think to that, you know, you know, what you said, it's when, when it felt okay to do that. I think a lot of, um, you know, especially in, in our circle of, of people who we talk to and people who we jabber about music about and, and the, and, and commenters and, and, and people who aren't total assholes. Uh, our method and our, our number rule, number one rule as, as critics and, and just people in life is like, don't punch down. Like, if you're going to punch, punch up. Right. And as soon as Jack, as soon as you felt like you were punching up at Jack White, then it was sort of like, all right, let's do this. We can get, we can kind of get away with this, right? Right. And I feel like that is, that becomes not, maybe not necessarily the healthiest mentality to have online and with other people, um, because then it sort of feels like pylon culture. And then it just sort of feels like, well, this is, this is an excuse for you to be an asshole. It's just, you know, just because like you feel like you are, can finally get a joke in at someone's expense and not feel bad about it. So I'm always kind of cautious whenever I see sort of a tide turn to, to just to, to be able to, to keep my footing, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, okay. Well, especially with artists that I feel like are easy to criticize and you know, you won't have, you won't have to defend your position if you make fun of them. Like you can make fun of right. Ed Sheeran and you know that you're probably not going to have to defend that. But if you make a joke about Beyonce, you are going to have to defend that. So oh, yeah. th- there's like almost like it's like the opposite with Ed Sheeran. Like people feel emboldened to take shots at him, even if they don't really care about him one way or the other, or even if they like some of his songs. Um, but then there's other artists where it's very hard to take shots at them because you know you're going to have to defend it. So yeah, absolutely, you, you have to do that. You know, uh, I also think there's an element of Jack White where it's a generational thing as well. I think that if you totally. were in your teens or early twenties when white blood cells came out or elephant, you know, you have a feeling for Jack white. That's different. If you're a little bit younger, um, mm-hmm. I mean, those records are great. You know, the first four, I think, especially, I mean, you know, people would argue all the white stripes records are great and I, I love them all, but those first four in particular are truly great records. And I can remember hearing, Dead Leaves on the Dirty Ground for the first time. And it is one of the great musical moments of my life. That song was so awesome. Hearing it come out of like my car stereo, like when I put the CD in after, you know, getting it at the record store. 
it was yeah. it was awesome. It was it was like hearing like whole lot of love for the first time or like any other kind of amazing rock song. Oh yeah. Um, I mean he's I mean he Jack White has made genuinely great important records. But I feel like if you miss that window, it's kind of hard to explain that to people. I I feel like you know people who are in their teens and early 20s now just look at him as a blowhard. And if you try to explain how great those records were, or you try to like a, you know stump for them and say, "Hey, you should check these out," you also sound like a blowhard, <laughs> you know, defending him. Um, so, I mean, as someone, I I know you said that you appreciate Jack White. You're a fan of his. What is the case that you would make to those people who maybe heard Boarding House Reach, didn't like it, and are kind of wondering why? You know, what, why do people care about this guy? Like, what would you, what would like? How would you stand up for him? I guess. First of all, I, I think you're absolutely correct, and I, I have evidence to to back you up on this. That, <laughs> that I know that people in their young twenties, their early twenties, right now, um, you know, who sort of just think of Jack White as this uh, snake oil salesman, um, <laughs> just think he's just full of shit. And and, and I think um, part of that part of that disconnect has come from the, what we think of how rock music has changed in the last five years. Um, you know, what, what we think about as what gets played on the radio, how would I sort of, uh, guide a younger listener to, um, through this, uh, era of Jack White's, um, career. Honestly, I would, I would direct them to think of Jack White now as, Someone who is a curator. I wouldn't say a Spengali because that kind of is a pejorative term, but but someone who is who's curating and thinking about music and thinking about what is good about music. And maybe if he ha- if he's sort of struggled to express that, he knows what it is, and I I think he seeks that out through his record label, through Third Man, and through um, like the Blue Label, I believe he does. That's like a long running. Um, uh, series that he has where he puts out uh, seven inches from from bands that he finds interesting. Like I think he's he's an incredible um, selector and curator and 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 someone whose mind never rests. And I feel like that uh, doesn't translate well to recording solo music. I think it works better when he's with the the Dead Weather and he's just got a band and he's playing with. Um, I mean, that stuff that he did with Alison Mossart and The Dead Weather is really remarkable. I would point him to that. I, there's a lot of live videos that I would point him to. I would go tell him to go see him live. God, I mean, that's, there's so many bands where um, they just kind of don't do it for you on record, but they will win you over live. And I think Jack White is someone who can who might be able to win you over live. Yeah, Have you I, seen him live? Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, I, I've seen him many. I've seen him... Um... I've seen the White Stripes. I saw the Rock on tours, and I've seen him solo twice. I actually saw him this week in Los Angeles uh, playing these songs. And by the way, the new songs—if you don't like the record—they um, sound a lot fuller and livelier live. So I think even people who aren't crazy about this new record—if you go see him on this tour—I think you'll enjoy uh, those songs live. Yeah, I mean everything you just said, I, I totally sign off on. And I would also say too that, you know. I was thinking about this also in terms of like Julian Casablancas, you know, recently mm-hmm. he did that interview with uh, New York Magazine, which was totally insane and crazy. To me, like, the, the, 
if we if we're going to compare rock stars or indie rock stars from today to the indie rock stars of like 15 20 years ago i like the fact that those older stars say things that are sort of crazy and outrageous and they act in ways that aren't totally admirable you know because that makes them more interesting you know the thing with jack white the reason i think he's a great rock star is that even when he fails he's interesting and mm-hmm. to me, Boarding House Reach, I don't count it as a failure. I don't count it as one of his great records. But like, I, the moments on this record that don't work, I still feel compelled by. And I still like to think about what was he thinking when he did this? And how did he go about totally. doing it? And how does this fit with the rest of the things that he does? And um, there aren't that many people that you can say that about. I think that is only true of like the truly great rock, rap, pop stars. You know, that's true of Kanye West. That's true of David Bowie, John Lennon. I think it's also true of Jack White. Um, And, you know, to me, again, I I just think that sometimes we're a little bit too hard on these people. I think, and I think that we don't take the entertainment value of failure into uh, account enough. I think that like when people fail or they do things that are kind of goofy, we immediately mark it down as bad rather than saying, even if this doesn't work, I'm still sort of entertained by it. I'm this because this is more fun to talk about than a lot of other records that are maybe technically more consistent than this, but they're way more boring, you know. Mm. And to me, you know, to me, this record isn't boring, and Jack White is never boring. Even when he annoys me, even when he's obnoxious, even when I feel compelled to make fun of him, uh, he's always. I'm always glad that I get to talk about him. You know, he's one of my favorite people to write about. So I I hope that uh, he doesn't get too respectable in the future. I hope he continues to he, he stumble. commands respect. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> he yeah. does commit. Well, yes, exactly. And uh, he's uh, he's sending me down the mine shaft of uh, hot takes <laughs> to defend him. We're in the mine shaft right now. <laughs> we should rename this. You should rename this podcast the Mind Shaft. Yeah, well, you know, we might have like a Mind Shaft segment, like where we have to, like, again, like dig down deep for like the truly precious takes. Yeah. And I think my I, precious take in this episode is that even when Jack White is bumbling, he's still brilliant. I, I don't know if that's true, but I mean, that's that's gonna, I'm gonna stick with that. I think that's my Mind Shaft take uh, for this episode. My, Here's my mind chef take because I have to double down. And that's like, that's something you can say about your friend's art. But when you're a critic right. evaluating art, like that's, to me, I'm like, that's kind of feckless and milquetoast criticism. You know, like come at someone with an idea of what you believe in and what you believe good music should sound like. And if you can argue really well why you think that this failed on that level, even if it's sort of inherently interesting, I feel like that that to sort of take the hatch of like, well, at least it's interesting. Like to me, right. like I, I'm that doesn't interest me or that doesn't um, uh, make me excited as an editor of reviews or as a critic myself. Because it's it's like, well, what can't you say that about? You know, right? And that is the true. And, and, and you're absolutely right. I guess what I would say is that you know you can call up the you know the shortcomings and you can critic you can be tough and you can be critical but you can also be affectionate at the same time and i feel like that is what and i don't want to go down too deep on this road because we have to wrap up here pretty soon but mm-hmm. that, that's what can be tough about if you just look at a score uh, oh, yeah. or stars or something that like 
you know, you can you can write like a 2.0 review for of a record and still have a lot of affection for it, you know, while also calling out everything that's wrong with it. But also, mm-hmm. like to me, like the ultimate example of this is Muse. Like I think if I had to, if I had to give like a Pitchfork score to any Muse album, I probably wouldn't go above a five. Like for like, Black Holes and Revelations, I'd go high because I, I think that's genuinely fun. But like a lot of the records, I don't think are good. But like I love them in a way. You don't think Origin, you don't think Origin of Symmetry is good? Uh, how, okay, you're right. I would say like okay, the pre. I would say up into like Black Holes. Because like Origin of Symmetry is the one before that, right? That's like two, 2003? Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then Black Holes and Revelations? No, then Absolution. Absolution. 2004. Okay. And We're, then Black Holes is 2006, 2005, 2006 maybe? Black Holes is number clear number one for me, and then Origin of Symmetry would probably be after that, and then yeah. the rest are kind of like... Well, I, I, again, I, I feel like the ones after Black Holes is like when they're starting to like really go into the stratosphere of... like. Uh, awesome badness, you know, like that, that, that's like their Michael Bay period after that, where they're just making Transformers movies, but they're, you know, records, you know, so. I, I wrote this, I wrote this, I wrote this piece last year, I think, that, that is totally in your wheelhouse, because it's about Miller Highlights and Wisconsin <laughs> and Muse. I have to send it to you. Okay, I, 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 I just like it. how you led with Miller High Life, that that would be in my wheelhouse, because it was about. The... I know. <laughs> Champagne and beers. Hey guys, we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. I just want to tell you about something I'm really excited about, which is the release of my new book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It comes out May 8th, and it's available for pre-order right now from wherever you like to buy books. Twilight of the Gods is about rock stars and how they all seem to be retiring or even dying right now. If you're like me, you grew up listening to Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, the Beatles, and the Stones, even though it's been years, even decades, since those groups were in their primes or even still together. How has this music endured for so long, and what is the attraction of classic rock culture, and what impact did it have on the world? And what will happen to the music now that so many stars are exiting the stage permanently? My book covers all these things as well as, well, a lot of other cool stuff about artists like Neil Young, Bob Seger, Bruce Springsteen, Paul McCartney, Black Sabbath, ACDC, uh, there's a little bit about Ario Speedwagon in there. Uh, there's a Fish chapter in there. There's Pearl Jam. There's Wilco. Ah, man, there's like a million bands covered in this book. So if you like this podcast, you're going to like the book. Just go to wherever you buy books and punch in Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It comes out May 8th. Pre-order it now. Okay, enough shilling. Let's get back to our conversation. Well, let me ask you this. I actually have one more question about about this album and because I feel like this may really define our relationship to it yeah is this does this album remind you of ween no i see what you mean on that i you know and i i went on an extended comparison in my in my review i mean i to me like this record reminded me of prince like it made me it made me draw connections between jack white and prince i think some of the ways that he sings are like prince i think that like just his brand being like real music Mm-hmm. which was Prince's brand, at least for like the last 15 or so years of his life. Um, but, you know, Ween is very influenced by Prince. So I understand what you mean. Like, Do you mean like because there's like different kinds of songs like throughout the I, record? I think the, 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 the bouncing from one thing to another without really feeling the need to explain why, there's just sort of the inherent like, this is 
this is odd for like oddity as an aesthetic, you know, as a feeling. I mean, I will say that like, you know, part of my, you know, part of me liking this record, I think is that I have a weakness for, for messes, like glorious messes. Mm -hmm. Like I like records that, um, where they're throwing a lot of stuff against the wall and not everything sticks, but there's sort of an exhilarating feeling on the record that like anything could happen. And when it does pull off, like I think the song Corporation, which I thought sounded like a mess the first time I heard it, but then like by the fifth time I heard it, I came to really like it. And then when I saw it live, I thought it was awesome. That's a song where I, I, I was like, this that song rips live. I bet that song rips live. Yeah, it's great. And I feel like there's a bunch of songs on this record where uh, they don't make any sense the first couple of times you hear them, and then they kind of come together uh, in your brain. And I think you know maybe that's an element of, again, throwing everything against the wall and not everything sticks. But if you stick mm-hmm. with a record like that, your brain kind of starts to fill in the gaps a little bit, maybe with things that aren't actually on the record, if that makes sense. You totally. Know I, mean? I mean, that's how, you know, that, that, that can happen to our brains with a lot of music, you know, like you, like you just, when this, you know, the, uh, the serotonin, the dopamine, the dope, one of the chemicals, when, when that level, uh, balances out and you're not receiving too much of it. And when you hear something you're unfamiliar with, that's how your brain like creates connections and starts liking music. It's the, you know, so it's a the delicate balance between uh, listening to an album fifteen times in a row and like Stockholm syndrome. I was going to say, I was going to say, you know, sometimes there is Stockholm syndrome with a record where you're like, man, I'm in a room with this record and I want to make it out. I want to make it out alive. So I'm going to make a I'm going to make a truce with <laughs> yeah. this record. You know, and I wonder that sometimes. Um, but you know, again, but then you know you talked about like, does this record achieve what Jack White set out to do? And you said you feel like he didn't. And I actually disagree. I think that the connection between this record and all of Jack White's work is that he is taking the blues, which is an ancient form and running it through a modern sensibility, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's what he did in the white stripes. You know, people, you know, I've seen this recently. People talk about the white stripes being like a retro band or a nostalgia band. And it's like, were there people in the 1930s wearing red and white clothes, like playing on candy colored <laughs> instruments? You know, right. I don't think so. Like I, like when I hear Jack White and Meg White play death, you know, death letter, I can tell that it's not Sunhouse. They're not trying to right. sound like Sunhouse. They sound like the white stripes. And to me, that is what the great people that have, you know, experimented, experimented with the blues have done. Like they've taken that form and they've made it sound like themselves. And, if you, you you go to Death Letter and you go all the way up to this record, I think he's doing the same thing. He's he's taking the music that moved him as a kid and he's trying to do something different with it. And whether you think it works or not is, a, is another story, but I think what he set out to do was precisely that. I think that's always been his MO. And in that respect, I, I would argue that the record is a, is a success because it I think it fits with what he's done uh, you know, sort of philosophically throughout his career, and uh, and yet it, it feels like its own thing. You know, he's not repeating himself. So that would be my defense of the record. I think, in in a nutshell, um, yeah, as totally flawed credible. and totally in, credible. And acknowledging all the flaws of it, acknowledging the bad rapping, acknowledging some of the sort of ham-fisted uh, musical gestures that exist on it, but taken as a whole, I think um, there's a lot to admire on it. And I think it will age well. I think 
maybe people will come back to it, you know, and they'll have their own Stockholm syndrome after <laughs> being locked up with this record and uh, maybe they'll come around on it in, in a couple of weeks if they, if they don't like it right now. Here's the good thing. One man's, one man's negative review is another man's peg to their 20, 20th anniversary like <laughs> re-examination of it. And, and you know what? Like, uh, Pitchfork didn't like, uh, was sort of mixed on Elephant, I remember originally. No way, really? Yeah. I haven't, I haven't <laughs> I, if I remember correctly, I think uh, Brent D. DiCrenzenzo, I can never pronounce his name correctly. He's like a oh, famous sure. Pitchfork writer from the early 2000s. He wrote, wrote the Kid A review that's like really famous. He, I think he wrote about um, Elephant, and he was sort of mixed on it at the time. So Interesting. Elephant is one, like a 10, just like, a, like an undoubtable 10 in my book. See? Just perfect, yeah. It's, right, it's perfect. Right, now there, right now there's a 10-year-old saying, I'm going to write the 10.0 review of Boarding House Reach <laughs> in uh, 2038. Uh, <laughs> Destroy the cannons. Destroy the cannons. Uh, we're gonna come back and destroy this cannon that we that we've, you know, just tried to tried to establish with this. Hey, my, uh, I think Derek has got an interjection here. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. The uh, elephant is a six point nine. A six point nine. So not so not so not totally negative, but not like totally but, negative. but for you know it's like giving Exile on Main Street a six point nine. So you know it's it's a little low, but not totally negative. Um, there's some there's some reviews in the I think we call that the wild wild west phase that are. That's just sort of our, uh, you know, like, like we gave, I think the, um, someone read the reissue of this kind of blue and gave it like a 6.8. You know, like, yeah, Try again, Miles. Kind of blue. Why don't you just call it blue? Go full bore on it. Don't be half-assed. Kind of blue. We're like, kind of boring. Jeez. <laughs> Pick up the pace here. Come on, buddy. Jeremy? I know. Are we getting? Do we have to go? I'm picking up the coat and walking you towards the door. But if you got something else, um, I was just going to say, I had. I wonder if this happens to you because this happens to me a lot. Is that whenever I sort of decide I don't like something, that sticks with me way longer in my head than when I decide that I really love something. Um, and, and I don't. I don't know if that's just me, and that's just sort of my my DNA makeup. But if I'll just if I'll listen to a song and be like, ah, I don't like that, and I'll say, you know, publicly or privately that I don't like it, I, I sit with that like a like a you know just like a something like a something that uh, just gets in my neck and my back, and I keep <laughs> thinking about like, why don't I like this? Are you, am I sure I don't like this? Am I wrong about why I don't like this? And I just go over and over and over again, and so all of this involuted thought just sort of builds up and I, and I, I will always, not always, but sometimes I will come and second guess myself on why I don't like an album because I start, because I, I end up thinking about it more than I think about whether an album is like just okay or really good. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm okay with that. I think the thing that's dangerous with me is when I think something is good and everyone says it's great, which then makes me think that it's bad. <laughs> and that's like a dangerous mind game you have to avoid where you're like, yeah, this is, this is pretty good. And everyone's like, this is the best. This is a masterpiece. And you're like, I hate this record. So it, now it's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. You run the other direction. Yeah. And you have to be, have to be careful with that. Jeremy, it is awesome having you on here. Thank you so much. We'll have to do it again sometime. If you're on one more time, you officially become a friend of the podcast. So I just, oh my dang- goodness, I would love to be a friend of the podcast. I'm, I'm just dangling that out there for you. 
Oh. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll come on and we'll just talk about WKLH the whole time. I, I think that'll be fun. Jeremy, man. The one up three and cheese curds. Thank you so <laughs> exactly, much man. for having right. me. It's been great. Yeah, take care, dude. All right, you too. Bye. All right, that was me and Jeremy Larson talking about Jack White, talking about Wisconsin, talking about Milwaukee Classic Rock Stations. That really makes me want to do an episode on Milwaukee Classic Rock Stations. Derek, do you think that would have a pretty big reach with our listeners? Uh, it would go at least to, uh, what do they say, uh, Waukesha? Yeah. yeah. It would be huge in Waukesha. I'm trying to break <laughs> into that Waukesha market. Uh, guys, thank you so much for listening. You know, we wouldn't have a show without listeners, so thank you for checking us out every week and, and for supporting us, leaving reviews on iTunes, telling your friends about us. All these things are essential for helping us do what we do. So thank you so much for doing that. Also got to give a shout out to my man, Derek Madden, who makes this show happen every week, puts it together. And also a shout out to Josh Copperman, who wrote our theme song. Thank you, Josh. Guys, thank you so much for listening this week. We will uh, talk to you again next week. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.